Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today I've got Mike French on the show for the second time. The first time Mike joined us, we spoke about his literary venture, the highly successful The View From Here. And today Mike's here to talk about his novel, The Ascent of Isaac Stewart. Mike, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Hello. Now, before we start talking, um, can I just get you to read a little bit from the book? Yes, of course, yeah. Um, I might as well start at the beginning. If I read the prologue out, that's quite short. So, uh, here we go. Prologue. Isaac reached out towards the rock face. It felt cold, yet he could sense warmth buried deep below. Particles of rock shifted, mica clustered, and the mountain tried to find the form to fit the impression of skin pressed against it. Isaac looked out across the canyon and waited until he was sure that the rock and he had become one. A hollow formed across the granite, Isaac pressed in his hand, blurring the boundary between flesh and stone. The winter sun played with the canvas below, finding its way into nooks and crannies, moss and hollows, painting a yellow hue that was insipid, the promise of warmth withheld until the earth tipped a nod to its god. Clouds swept over the top of the mountain range. Isaac watched the buzzard glide on the thermals, then pulled on his handhold and set his climbing shoes against the smooth face. A wind crept around from the north and flowed either side of Isaac, outlining his shape and movement. He stopped and felt it against his cheeks. Forming solid edges to his hands again, he found definition in his blue-tipped fingers and raised his head. He could smell pollen, bluebells against water, snowdrops through snow. Images of movement came with the wind, children, trains, butterflies, boots revealing grit under virgin snow. Isaac swept aside the memories and focused again on being still, so he could see in his mind's eye the position of the window he'd seen in his dream. He slowed his breathing and saw himself falling. Isaac blinked and looked around. The beauty of the open space calmed him and he pushed his fear into the ends of his toes. He looked up. The clouds grew darker. The wind left him. The smell of promised spring left his nostrils. The buzzers became two, then three, then one continuous circle of flight. And then, in the stillness, high above, just to the right, Isaac saw the window. Isaac pulled his dream around him and felt his insides become fluid. Everything seemed transient to him. Nothing within was still. His organs became water, his bones white froth on blood. He set out and the rock itself became fluid as Isaac swam through towards his goal. Gravity span in confusion and tugged one way, then another. The stone kept him close, embracing Isaac in its form, protecting him from the consequence of separation. At points, Isaac's body seemed to sink into the mountain, but he kept his eyes ever on the end before him. He surfaced just before, just below the window. Made of wood, it was grafted onto the mountain. Rust fell as orange rain from the contorted railings running along the front of the ledge. Isaac looked as the buzzard swooped down and perched on it. It turned its head, met his eyes, then flew off again. Isaac's pulse increased, his hands now clammy. He reached for the handle to open the window. Inside, he could see a family gathered around a breakfast table. Behind them, a large tree sat in a wood, set in a woodland. Isaac felt heavy, as if a stone falling through water to the bed below. His head span, his fingers started to come away from the handle. Open it, he thought. Open it. Tears, fought, tears formed in his eyes. Swe- uh, sweat swept his brow and formed a sheen on his hands. He drew back. In his dream, he had fallen. Screaming had given way to silence as his body snapped and pulsed. He'd sunk, in, he'd sunk into the dust as if the ground was quicksand. Isaac remembered the dirt flowing into his mouth, finding the hollows inside, choking, darkness. 
the never-ending darkness. There you go. That's the end of the that's very powerful, that opening. And uh, and I went back and reread it as well after I read the book, and I thought, um, hmm, <laughs> I don't want to give anything away, but that's a pretty pivotal moment in Isaac's life, isn't it? It is, definitely, yes, yes. So he, he revisits that place in a slightly different way, definitely. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of symbolism in there, and I wasn't um, 100% sure about all of the symbols, but certainly the birds and, and so forth. Um, talk to me a little bit about some of the symbolism you use in the book. Um, some of it's fairly simple, like um, so I think there's, there's uh, magpies. If you see magpies, um, is it, I can't remember now because it was a while I read the, uh, wrote the book. If you see one magpie, it's bad luck or something like that. Um, or is it two? I can't remember. But certainly magpies are sort of caught up with uh, you know old wives' tales and superstitions and things. So that's the reason that there was a magpie in it. Other things were just... Uh, just as they took my fancy, really. It was, it, I didn't set out with a deliberate intention of I will have lots of these kind of things in there. It just kind of naturally came in. Um, partly for fun, partly just, just to give it a bit of depth that the more you looked into it, the more things actually did connect together if you, you, know, if you wanted to have a look at it. Sure. And, and how did the book come about? Where, where did the idea for the novel originate? Uh, um, I don't, to be honest, I'm not sure, um, because my background isn't a writer, so my background is, um, I'm an optical engineer, physicist, um, and this is going to be a long answer to your quick quick question. <laughs> Take <laughs> um, your time. But basically, I was an optical engineer, uh, had no real history of, of writing or, or being particularly interested in it, save from, you know, obviously loving reading as a child, um, and I became, do you have the expression home dad there? Yeah, yes, yes, stay at home, Dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I became a stay-at-home dad and sort of resigned from my engineering job, which they were quite surprised about. I don't think they could quite understand that I was leaving to look after my kids. Um, so I kind of found myself in the situation where I was in home dad, stay-at-home dad mode, and started to think, look at things just to keep my mind active. So I absolutely love doing it. Um, but your yeah, brain does tend to go to mush if you're not careful and you live in... Uh, we, we have things like Teletubbies over here. I don't know if you have them. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm familiar with them. <laughs> so, so I managed to synchronise the kids that they had their afternoon nap all at the same time because I had three children. Um, and it it just came that, just the thought that, you know, perhaps it would be a good idea to try writing. I remember at the time thinking... That's a really crazy idea because I've got no history in it, you know. Um, but it was one of those, I don't know if you ever get them, one of those little nagging voices in the back of your head that just wouldn't go away. Um, and it just kept nagging me. Until the end, I thought, oh, oh, this is ridiculous. Oh, let, let me just sit down. You know, I don't really know what I'm doing, but let's just have a go and see, you know, what this is then. Um, and then found that I absolutely loved it. Um, and so really I took it from there. So at the very start, I really didn't know what I was doing. And then I had an idea um, that I wanted about the tree. And that was kind of the pivotal thing about this tree being, um, I won't say too much, but basically the, the, something happens to the tree that's symbolic to Isaac. Um, and that was the kind of gem of the idea. And then I sort of built it up and formatted the story and laid it up around there. So it was, it was a bit of a discovery for me as well. Mm. And, and I mean, it's interesting um, what you say that you know you, you you're a physicist and, and an engineer. I don't know, or normally hear those two things together, but um, it, it struck me that there was some physics, particularly modern physics, um, in the book. The whole notion of time and the way it twists and distorts. 
Absolutely. Um, what, what the reason I kind of like physics is the, the bits of physics which ask big questions and fundamental questions about the nature of reality around you and, and time and space. I love all that kind of stuff. Uh, and part of the stuff that I you know learned as a physicist was that you can't ju- you can't trust um, your common sense in that your common sense is formed throughout your life of the things that you can perceive around you, but your perceptions are fairly limited. Um, and so when you come across some things in physics that are to do with a really small matter or you know big big stuff, you you come across ideas and concepts like time is 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 fluid, time is is different for every person and um, all this kind of stuff. That is right, but your mind kind of tells you that can't that that has to be wrong. There's something wrong because you're basing it on your preconceptions of what you think common sense is. And you have to kind of put your common sense down and think that I just have to forget that, look at this and just accept that this is what's happening. I just I can't see it with my eyes. So that kind of opening up of what is reality and what your mind interprets as reality into like a almost a narrative for you so that you can understand and make sense of your world um, it, it can can be challenged by science. So I kind of want, I did the same thing with a novel in the sort of the concept of what is linear time, the concept of you know what, what the world is around you, um, if you know can be completely skewed and, and thrown out the window and still make sense, but make sense in a different way than we would normally make sense of things. Einstein called it the persistent illusion of time's yeah. arrow. Um, but but interestingly, um, that cognitive science and the way the brain works does seem sometimes to me, particularly during times of extreme stress, as Isaac is under extreme stress, um, does seem to mirror a little bit, um, you know, our understanding of physics. Yes, I think in the fact that if you're under extreme stress, your kind of normal coping mechanisms kind of break down and you're you're open to a whole load of different things that normally you would sort of shield yourself from or you wouldn't go there emotionally or... Um, or often if you're under stress, parts of your personality or characteristics come out that you normally would keep you know, suppressed down and under control. And sometimes I think when that happens, you kind of realize there's aspects of yourself or your personality that, you, that sometimes surprise you, that you didn't, you didn't realize you could be like that in a certain situation. So, um, so yeah, so when Isaac starts to you know, break down, and both physically and mentally, then there's, there's things come to light that it's almost an extreme situation. And then again, it's the same with science. You, know, you go to extreme situations, like really small or really big, then you start to see things that you wouldn't normally see in sort of day-to-day life. So yes, there's definitely a mirror going on there. And you're not the only writer who's dealt with things along those lines. The modernists, of course, who to whom you've been compared um, by me as, as well as other people, um, you know, Joyce Faulkner, Pynchon, um, a lot of them have worked along these lines. So talk to me a little bit about um, the impact of those traditions on you. Um, not massive, to be honest, because I came from a, a background, like I said, of sort of not being immersed in kind of the literary world and, you know, to a large extent, the kind of whole artistic movements and um, I wasn't really aware of them so for example when um, my, my first copies of the book started going out to some of my friends and things and they were making comments about James Joyce and all these kind of people to be honest even though I was you know, a literary editor I, I'd never read any of their work or come into contact with any of their work so I was having to you know, do a quick okay, I better have a look at these guys 
Um, and I was getting comments like, really, you, you, you sure you've never read James Joyce before? Because I said, you know, I, I really haven't, honest. So there, there, as far as I'm aware, that there was no um, influence on me that kind of steered me down that route. Um, although, you know, there may well have been that I wasn't really aware of. But certainly, as far as I know, all that kind of body of work didn't affect what I'm now doing. It's, it's, so it's quite interesting. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, uh, <laughs> have you pulled out Finnegan's Wegg since? Um, I had a little look on uh, the Kindle, which has got like the first few pages of free on Amazon. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, okay, this is very <laughs> Not the best choice book to start with, so uh, no. this is magnificent. No, so, uh, in fact, uh, when I go to some of my book signings, um, some of the some of the people that have kind of studied James Joyce as part of their degree or something, uh, look at the back. So I've got a quote about some uh, R.M. Morris. He kindly had a look at a, uh, an early copy and did a blurb for me, compared it to James Joyce. So some of the people then in the bookshops and stuff that read that say, really, you really want to have James Joyce on the back of your cover compared to that? <laughs> it's like, they obviously hate it because they've been forced to read it as part of their, you know, their PhD or something. So. Oh no, there's no finer compliment. <laughs> oh, but even Faulkner, who you know, who I guess is um, less daunting for people. I, I understand why Finnegan's Wake is daunting. Although, um, again, I think Ulysses is less less so, and uh, certainly Portrait of an Artist is is quite linear. But um, you know, Faulkner's um, examination of, for example, the autistic mind in mm. in Benji and the Sound and the Fury. I mean, those again, those traditions of going into the brain. And starting to examine what's up there and how the brain works, um, you know, I think that that's something that uh, I certainly thought about as I was reading the book. Yeah, I think the whole thing's fascinating. I mean, I, I think I just couldn't help myself. And if I was going to be doing a novel about someone that was under extreme pressure and breaking down, then really, uh, you can, and people have done kind of a linear, kind of more traditional follow on that. But for me, the whole nature of doing that meant for me that, well, you know, the lines of reality were going to become blurred. The, you know, the division between what's happening in your subconscious and your consciousness, all that kind of is going to get distorted if you are going to follow this guy having, you know, basically a breakdown. Um, because you're that you're unable to keep everything packaged into nice little neat areas, which we which we all like to do because we need to survive. Um, and therefore, all that does become blurred. So, um, but there's always a fine line trying to track down that and follow the person into that without it becoming just so mad that no one's got any chance at all of working out what a nurse is going on. So, um, but it was a, which is a difficult thing to do. Yes. Um, in in uh, Isaac's, I guess, pre-death imagining, um, did you have in mind the hard reality um, consistently with the, the inside experience? I mean, even when we dream, I suppose, you know, the the crowing of a rooster outside um, or, you know, the fact that we're cold will influence how we dream. Um, I did a little bit, um, but not too much. You mean where you you take things that happen in reality and then you mirror it in, the, in his sort of consciousness? In his subconscious. Yeah, or, or even, you know, the, I guess there's the inside the head and there's the outside the head. So the actual thing that perhaps a, a reader or a person who was looking at Isaac would see, kind of the, the reality of his situation as opposed yeah. to how he's experienced. Um, I did a little bit, but I didn't make a conscious effort to set out to do that a lot. So if there is bits in there that are like that, that's more just because it's just happened that way rather than it's been you know, a predetermined plan that, okay, I will, def- I will set out to definitely do that at certain points. Um, 
one of the things that really struck me as I was reading was the um, the biblical references. I mean, obvious. Some of them are quite obvious. Some of them more subtle. The names, of course, um, but also the way in which the characters interact. Yeah, um, that partly that was me having a bit of fun, <laughs> uh, and partly um, I, I just thought it was interesting to take some of the things that happened to uh, you know Isaac and Rebecca and his and stuff and just have a look at that and then try to play that into a contemporary setting. Um, uh, so there are, there are little bits in there, for example, at one point, um, they're escaping from a jail in his subconsciousness and they walk past two guards that are sleeping. And, and that, that's almost, I didn't do it word for word, but that's almost lifted out of part of the Old Testament. Um, or another New Testament where uh, I think it's Peter or someone's escaping from jail and walks past two guards that are asleep. So there's little just snippets just cut in um, partly for, like I say, just have a bit of fun and partly just to give it an, an added um, depth or um, quite, it's difficult to do but I think quite often if you can drop little biblical bits into it it kind of gives it a bit more depth um, where the fine line, you can, you can overdo it um, part, like I say, the part of it was a bit of fun though so most, one of the things that people haven't seemed to pick up yet on the book um, and that might just be my sense of humour is that uh, I didn't, although I wanted this to be like a serious book and dealing with a serious subject, I didn't want it to be one of these books where you think, oh my gosh, I'm going to slip my wrist, this is so depressing. You know, I just, so I tried to do it with a kind of lightness to it and a bit of um, humour in places. Um, so uh, that kind of plays into that. Um, in fact, there, was, there did used to be a lot more humour in the book, but when I sort of um, edited it and went to a consultancy to try and get it um, so it had a... a, a a uniform tone to it. A lot of that got cut out of it. So, yes, I suppose all the Punch and Judy stuff is is humorous, black but mm. humorous. Yes. So I, I think I wanted to enjoy myself as I read, as I wrote it, as well as you know dealing with a serious thing. So, um, yeah. So those 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 are why those things are in there. Um, now the the book does um, demand a reasonable amount of attention from readers. Um, yeah. Do you feel or do you worry that attention spans in general are shortening? Um, yes, uh, it, it, oh, it's so interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah, because uh, um, some of the comments and reviews have come back, and you kind of get the sense of uh, you do ask yourself the question: you know, are people just skim reading, or are people that it has to make sense quite quickly? And it has to be coherent and logical quite quickly, otherwise people haven't got the attention span or, or the will, the desire or the, the thirst in them to kind of dig around and get something out of it. Um, and, you know, who knows why that may... Possibly it's kind of the Western culture that we're in of, um, you know, everything, you know, most things must make intellectual sense quite quickly. And the culture we're in where, you know, everything's kind of pop noodles and over in five minutes and kind of... Um, I, I read someone saying on a blog this morning actually that you know did, did people want kind of TV pictures just you know transferred directly into words in novels that so it's it's strange. Um, I wrote a, a guest article on um, uh, someone's uh, uh, blog recently about this whole kind of thing about um, you know the nature of fiction as art and can art can fiction be art and people's people's appetite for that and has people's appetite for that decreased and they're, they're more interested in we just want a quick um, easy readable I don't know if you've been following the book over there but there's, there's a, a huge kind of 
uh, hoo-ha over here about that they said they wanted books to be readable and what did that mean and you know were they dumbing down and what exactly are you talking about so it's a kind of uh, hot topic at the moment about you know how intellectually stimulating should a novel be how how much should novels be pushing uh, you know and on the edge of things and kind of consensus being to you know to a large extent novels have kind of got left behind you know and are less cutting edge than perhaps they could be so it's a fascinating subject. Yeah, it is an interesting question, and I mean, I, I think the book has totally redeemed itself by choosing the great Julian Barnes. But um, I know, I'm so <laughs> pleased. Who's interviewed? <laughs> it's just a shame that his wife was uh, not allowed yeah. to sit, really. But, but never mind, he got it in the end. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, yeah, I think. Um, it is a fascinating question, and I, you know, I think in the context of your book too, because one of the things I think that um, made the modernists a so interesting and you know not followed was the the intellectual rigor they demanded of their readers, Wolf's yeah. Joyce, and I don't think that that readers would have the you know some do of course, but only because they're canonical now, um, the attention span to take a new novelist um, who's Joyce. And you know, and go through Ulysses again. Uh, I just don't know that a publisher would do it. It's um, it's a big challenge. Yes, you do read that and think, yeah, if he was to submit that as an unknown today, then you know, you couldn't see it ever see the light of day. <laughs> yes, and in a way, that's a shame. I mean, as a reader, it's a shame because um, you know, the, I think something's lost if we always need to have the sort of Dan Brown formula when we read. Absolutely, and. Uh, you know, I found the whole thing incredibly hard because, uh, as you know, um, as you know, any of your listeners know that you know, are aspiring writers and trying to get publishing contracts themselves, the, the, the whole business of trying to get a publishing contract is so incredibly hard. Um, and so I was getting comments of, um, you know, this is really good. You can obviously write. You, you know, you should be able to get published. But we're not sure, so sure about all these surreal bits and things. And I did kind of think, you know, what am I doing? This is so hard anyway. Um, but I'm trying to get placed my first novel, which is, you know, difficult inverted commas novel. Um, you know, maybe I should just go away and just do a, a simple novel and just, you know, increase my chances of getting published. But I think I was just stubborn in the end and just thought, no, you know, I want to see this published. Um, so, you know, kept going. But uh, I did wonder sometimes what on earth I was doing and making things even harder than they already are. But I got there in the end, so. Yes. And, and I think that there are readers, certainly. I mean, I don't think, you know we can generalize and say, you know, that there are readers who are prepared to do, you know, a little bit of front-end work. Oh, absolutely. The readers are out there, definitely. So it's trying to find them, and it's trying to foster an environment where, um, you know, more people are encouraged not to be passive readers. You know, that the, the more you can engage with a text and the more you need to bring of yourself to it and the more attention you need to give it, ultimately, you know, the more you'll get back out of that novel. Um, so it's trying to persuade people that this isn't like some kind of medicine. We're going to force you to have it, and it's going to be horrible. It's going to be like, you know, if you invest the time, then, you know, you, you will get more and more out of it. Um, but I think with people's sort of perception of things have to be instant, things have to be quick, they, they take a bit of persuading to, you know, it is worth doing this. I think the other problem, I, I, I'm guilty of this as well, is tend, a lot of people tend to read in the kind of spaces in their lives, you know, either they commute into work, so they're reading on the train, or they're reading late at night before they go to sleep, and so people's attention, or the space they give to reading, tends tend to be condensed down into, you know, small amounts, whereas, 
you know, I'm, I'm sure in the past that, you know, sitting down next to the fire and reading a book in the evenings, you know, a bit more than norm, you, you know, you, this kind of book would probably have more of a chance. <laughs> And I'm sure there's a physics reason for it, but time, of course, is condensing at the moment yeah. for everyone. Um, so tell me a little bit about the view from here. Uh, we spoke about it some years ago, but it's um, it's grown and changed considerably over the years, hasn't it? It has. It's, I, I've absolutely loved doing the view from here, um, and it's been you know, really interesting. So we've gone through you know various different changes. Um, so for leading up to, we stopped in June, but prior to June we did three years of printed editions of the magazine, and that was doing a printed edition every month, um, which was quite mad really, I think, just in the you know, terms of how long it takes to set out and do graphic design and get these things out, um, was quite mad, but absolutely loved it. Um, and we were quite keen that you know each magazine had to look good, it couldn't just look like it had been rushed out. Um, but then trying to make that into a model that you could sustain or would bring even a small amount of money in or, or finding a market in the magazine world, which is really cutthroat, just proved, you know, absolutely horrendous. So, you know, we did things like we managed for a short amount of time to get into some of the bookshops in um, New York. But the, like, I won't say who they were, but the distributor that we were using just wanted us to send magazines to them all the time without any money ever coming back to us. And it's like, this is crazy so in the end we just said in the end i think what what really made us change what we were doing was me getting my publishing contract and thinking that i you know i've been trying for this contract for trying to get a publishing contract for six years now i finally got it i've got to make the most of this opportunity you know i've been you know um, you know dying for this so i kind of took my foot off the gas pedal of the view from here and put it firmly on the incentivizer steward to get it out there um, which I had to do because it was a small publisher to make sure you know, it had a chance of finding a readership. And so the view from here then started drifting and our stats to the website started going down. Um, some of the, contribu you know, the contributions coming in for the articles and things started drying up. Um, and then that was also around the time when we stopped doing the printed magazine because it was costing us too much money. And really I got to the point of thinking, you know what, is, is this just a natural time to sort of put the view from here to bed and sort of think, you know, that was it. That was of its time. It's now finished. So I spent the last month umming and ahhing and talking to the team about, you know, should we continue? Uh, it was only, and it's only about a couple of weeks ago I decided that we were definitely going to continue it. And part of that was realizing that um, I love doing it. And if my kind of uh, literary world just becomes all about Mike French and my novels, then I felt a little bit uneasy about that and felt like kind of maybe I'd lost the plot if it just all became about me all the time. So I thought, no, I, I, I need to do the view from here and I need to encourage a kind of cooperative environment for people to work in. Um, so quite often in you know, the book industry and, and, and arts in general, it can all be about you and all about your photography or all about your novels. And, and you definitely have to push yourself forward. But when it becomes all about you, you kind of think, this kind of doesn't feel right. Shouldn't we be encouraging other creatives, you know, and other writers. Um, so I thought, no, I, I've got to keep the view from here going. So we've brought in new people. Um, and I, it's almost like I got a clearer sense of why we're doing it now. So um, it was quite a kind of keen time that we've just gone through. It's fantastic. And uh, I, I suppose, I'm, I mean, I'm personally happy you're keeping it going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but you got so many good writers as well. I mean, so many um, fantastic people seem keen to be interviewed and, and participate. Yeah, I've been really surprised. I mean, really, only in the very early days, when, even when it was still just sort of very bloggy, we had people like Julian Barnes saying yes, he'd be interviewed, and I was, I just kind of think this is mad. Why, you know? And then um, Ian Banks said he would be interviewed, and um, and yeah, strange. I don't really know how that happened. Um, and then just the kind of the people that come on board, and you know, you know, we don't make any money out of this. No one gets paid on the magazine. Everyone does it for the love of it. But we've got people like Annette Green, who's a literary agent, and Scott Pack, and uh, <coughs> Simon Chew, and all these people. They're really busy, yet they, you know, they they seem to want to be part of it. Um, and I was speaking to one of the members of the team today because we did a, I did um, Chanter Everything, who I did a workshop with this morning on um, editing. And she was saying, you know, we were talking about this, and she was saying she thinks it's because a lot of kind of um, the world of fiction and magazines and literary stuff can still be a little bit kind of um, dry and a little bit kind of um, cliquey. And the view from here is very sort of um, open, friendly, very focused on people. Um, so it has this whole different feel about it where it's very open and friendly and, you know, you know we don't look down our nose at anyone. So it kind of... I think it's important to keep that kind of, you know, I want to encourage that kind of atmosphere where, you know, you want the best for the people around you. Um, I think it's a healthy thing to do, especially as a writer, otherwise you can just collapse in on yourself. Yes, and I suppose that, you know, there is a kind of hunger as well among readers um, just to connect with one another, to share the joy of a, you know, great book. And I mean, I think that's one of the nice things about reading is, is the, you know, the sharing of the experience as well. Absolutely. Well, you kind of you you, you you it's just a huge desire you to do it, isn't it? So if you read a novel that you you like, you you want to go and talk to someone about it. It's like anything. You listen to a record or you know a single that you like. Your first instinct is to want to go. Hey, have you listened? Have you heard such and such? You you just instinctively want to share it. And so because the you know the book world is so fragmented and readers are fragmented, you know anything that brings them together so they can talk about it and enthuse about it. You know, it's, it's, it's a healthy thing, and it's a good thing. And yes, you're right, people have a, a, a huge appetite for that. Mm. And I suppose it brings you readers as well. I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a good promotional venue. Yes, it does, yeah. Um, the, it does bring us readers, although you kind of, I've now got to the point, because we've gone through various iterations of the view from here, where I've kind of accepted that um, it really isn't about making any money and it isn't really about chasing the sort of stats of, you know, massive amount of readers into it. It's it's more about the quality of it, putting it there. Um, and, you know, if it's just a small amount of readers, fine. If it's a huge amount of readers, fine. It's kind of so that we're not chasing the money or not chasing the, the blogs, you know, the stats of traffic into the site. We're chasing actually trying to, you know, a feeling or a sense of, um, you know, quality to the product. Yes, and I guess that's a relief too, to, you know, accept that, that you know, effectively it's a you know, big hobby. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a freeing thing, and it means you can do what you like. <laughs> it's like. You're not tied down to, well, we need to have a board meeting about that, or we need to look at the financial constraints on that. It's like, you know what, this can be what it is. And the beauty of that is it tends to end up quite organic then, in that, um, as different people come in, they bring their flavour to what the view from here is. So we're able to shift and accommodate that rather than saying, oh, no, you know, the view from here is all about this. You must be within this very tight, narrow, defined field of what you can operate in. 
we tend to give people as wide a field as we possibly can to operate in. Um, and that's quite risky because you know we're quite sure what's going to happen. But so far, it seems to you know it seems to work. So we're going to carry on doing that. And thank goodness. Um, so we're almost out of time. Um, but I know that you've got a, another novel, Blue Friday, um, in hand, uh, which you might or might not want to talk about. And uh, and you're working on your third novel as well. Can we just get a little hint before we finish up? Yeah, um, Blue Friday um, is uh, I'm, I'm really excited about. Um, but I've had to kind of suppress my excitement in it as Isaac Stewart was going out. Um, it started off as a short story a couple of years ago. Um, and then when I finally got down to, right, I can now write my second novel, I kind of kept coming back to it. So in the end, it, you know, took that and made it into the second novel and really in, enjoyed it and also made it quite different because I thought, you know, you know so I didn't want to do a sequel to The Center of Isaac Stewart. I didn't really want to do the same type of book as The Center of Isaac Stewart. I thought, uh, you know, I don't want to, I want to do something slightly different. So it still has, you know, bits of Mike French in it. Um, but it's quite a different novel, um, and it's it's quite short. It's quite clipped down. There's more dialogue in it, and it's basically set in a society in the future where working hours are strictly controlled. That you you only allowed to work between nine to five, um, and everything is controlled by the government and how long how long you can work. Um, and it's how people um, rebel against that. Um, and not that it's not a good thing in itself, but by putting down the laws on it, people naturally rebel against the work and work when they want. And it's how that kind of escalates in society and how people are fighting against that. So it, I really love it. So at the moment, I can't say too much about what's happening to it. It's uh, under review at the moment, so uh, we'll see. And then the, I don't know if I say this, but I, I better say it, otherwise my kids will kill me. My kids' reaction to me getting my first novel published, because my kids are still at school, of course, your kids are your number one fans, aren't they? So they go into school and say, Dad, my dad's an author. Uh, no, no, he's not. No, 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 he really is an author. And then when they finally, you know, the teachers finally believe them, they go, oh, because they're at school. Is it a kid's book? And of course the kids are, oh, no, it's an adult book. And then apparently the, the teacher's are a bit like, oh, oh, well, never mind. Um, and so the kids persuaded me to write a children's book. Um, which I've agreed to do. In fact, I've, I'm doing it at the moment. So my third book is a complete gear change, which is quite mind-bending, really. You know, to, you know, coming from something like the Ascent of Isaac Stewart and doing a kid's book. But I'm having a lot of fun doing it, so it's quite a, quite a challenge. So. Fantastic. Yeah. We'll, we'll look forward to both of those. <laughs> that's, that's all we have time for today. But thank you so much, Mike, for um, talking thank to you. us. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Excellent to chat to you again. Yeah, great to talk again, and I'm sure we will do it again in the future. So um, we'll speak to you at some point, and don't forget to join us next time on the Compulsive Reader Talks. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.